You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator-distributed, fan-supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio. Our nations are built on a lot of things, with our ancestors passing down the world they helped to shape. But what if we decided that maybe our ancestors, or those of other living things, still had work to do? And how comfortable would we be telling our descendants that we put Grandma back to work the day after the funeral? And maybe gave her a few accessories she didn't have while alive? We dig up more of our gritty, reanimated past on today's episode of Vorpal History. For this episode, we have a new voice to add to that of Governor Stonecarp's official scribe. A paladin of the Church of Oan kept a short record of her time as one of the defenders of Dunwellnish and explorers of this new land. Her perspective is interesting as it's that of a person devoted to a deity seen as, by and large, on the good side of the spectrum at a time when something she considered questionable was being perpetuated by those she protected and served. Before we get to this account, We'll check in with our colonial scribe, Lannis Caxton, as he starts to figure out just how so much seems to get done around the town hall when he's not the one being forced to do it. Prose Day, the 13th of Mavestus. Today saw the celebration of Ascension Day for our expedition's patron, King Hovarex IV, Sovereign of the Greenhold, Israelian, Iron Reach, the Golden Reach, etc. After arriving at the Grand Hall, as it's being called by our governor, I noticed a large amount of decoration on display. Large clusters of local flowers were arranged in every window, with streamers of cloth framing the roof. When I inquired with his lordship about these decorations, he noted that all we had on hand had been found stored in the ancient stone building we labored in, so the dyes would likely need to be refreshed for the next year. I must not have been clear in my questioning, as I was more interested in who had put them up between the previous sunset and today's sunrise. The most informative reply I received was that, should I ever have need of the ladders that had been employed, they were in the storage building, also recently unearthed, to the rear of the hall. Lord Stonecarp also mentioned that the roof could use some work if I had enough free time to critique the efforts of the Colonial Decorating Committee. Additionally, we have a Colonial Decorating Committee, although I was not provided with a founding date or membership as of this writing. The celebrations went off in a fashion I'm sure His Majesty would have been pleased with, given our circumstances. Fireworks, after a fashion, were arranged, though this was mostly by use of spells and alchemical agents aimed upwards rather than at a specific foe. Thankfully, due to recent snow and rain, the nearby forests didn't burn for long, and it was only an unfinished section of the colony's palisade that will need to be replaced. His Lordship gave his staff leave for the entirety of Ascension Day, and while his generosity may have been bolstered by what was in his flagon, we who serve at his pleasure were thankful for the opportunity to refrain from our toils. And whoever cleaned up after the celebration, we give the highest marks. As mysteriously as the decorations went up, they came down again, almost by magic. I should note that when I invoke the old phrase, almost by magic, it should be read as if the magicians in our company would find it quite beneath them to use their mystical training on such mundane things as relocating bunting, 
further reducing the likelihood of something occurring at all. We're going to skip forward a bit on Caxton's entries unless anyone really wants to know about an attempt at raising the brazier from the bay that they wanted to use as a lighthouse. Long story short, it was pulled out, the ropes slipped a little, and it came down on the base upside down. A test signal fire was lit, with those tending it complaining that both they and the logs had a tendency to slide down the side of the rounded surface and into the water. The Stonecart Bay Mushroom Memorial, as it came to be called, can still be seen to this day. For a day, the 15th of Mavestus. An incredible event has transpired in Dunwellmish today as it was revealed that necromancy had been at work in our midst. Untraceable rumors recently went untraceably through the Rusty Bucket Tavern regarding the keeping of ladders from the use by the general public when not employed for official projects. One citizen made a tipsy evening journey to claim the ladders to work on his home, only to be confronted by what he described as a strangely quiet guard. This quiet sentinel stood quite resolutely in front of the door to the storage building. The citizen, Master Ortst McGarry, has become somewhat infamous regarding his tirades and ability to wield profanity as effectively as a storm wields airborne trees. He became confused as to why his stream of abuse and insults had no apparent effect on the guard moving out of the way. Concerned that the guard might be suffering a stroke or some other possible malady, Master Orst used his fist to quickly remove the helmet of the guard to ascertain if he was somehow unconscious, but still standing. He was greeted with a visage of death, a grinning face of empty eye sockets, and a gleaming bone. He also testified that if this wasn't enough proof he'd encountered a walking corpse, the undead guard did nothing when Orst vomited on his boots. It has been his experience, he said, that when such things happen, the result is a drubbing that one does not soon forget. Overcome by the experience of necromantic constabulary, that unnaturally didn't club him for the slightest offense, Orst testified that he then passed out. This was met with skepticism until Maid Parville stated that she, too, had seen Orst toss his tankard onto a guard's shoes and not experience the entertaining comeuppance that act usually provided to onlookers. Thus was the citizen council convinced and demanded to review the guards being employed by the colony. Yes, this is also the first I've heard of the citizen council, which I'd previously taken to be... Them what are round the rusty bucket of an evening. So that was how the news was broken to the public, more or less. Lord Stonecarp supervised a lot of Caxton's entries about the event and what went on after, so we turn to another written record. We have the testimony of Angelia Laertus, paladin sworn to the law of Owen. For those who aren't up on the complicated vow system for various churches, sworn to the law of a deity gave you a lot of leeway with your activities. You had to have a lot of service to your church and your background most of the time, and if you wanted to go off trying to fight darkness or heretics without being ordered to, you could. The fact that this got very powerful people out of the temples and away from the actual power structure of their various religions was seen as a bonus, especially since they tended to solve problems with weapons. Moral dilemmas and schisms can be really kinetic when doctrine clashes with what we'll call realpolitik. Angelia was sent over as part of the Owen contingent, but she really wasn't entirely restricted by their mission of establishing a presence in the new-ish world. She apparently had witnessed the Citizens' Council's deliberations and recorded her subsequent thoughts and actions in her Book of Deeds, something a lot of paladins did at the time. 
You never knew where the next scripture was going to come from, so having your faith's members making notes about their activities helps a lot with sermons not becoming too repetitive. So we start with her entry the day after the undead were discovered in Dunwellness. Of all the realms they could have found, this was the most malevolent. For beyond the border of despair stand the gates of Eridol. These are the Chronicles of Eridol. A happy-go-lucky and good ham production. Anyone there? Ah, Charlie. Cassie. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Starn Day, the 16th of Mavestus. By Oan's helm and hammer, I find myself questioning our presence in this wicked land. It is one thing to find a place that knows not of our truths and visit Oan's mercies upon the beasts and brutes who know no better, but it's quite another to be living among them. I have been meditating on this occurrence for hours without revelation, which tells me that Oan desires me to work this out for myself. He does that quite often. For his healing hand and aid in battle, I do not begrudge these tests. I do find them more difficult than smiting something in the head, so perhaps I should be thankful for the challenge. Nevertheless, I am faced with the choice of destroying colony property or ending an unnatural mockery of life. On the morrow, I shall visit High Priest Yulbin and seek his counsel. Ilde, the 17th of Mavestus. I am no less troubled than I was before. Yulbin suggested I take a lesson from the trials of St. Kulix and contemplate the will of Oan while adhering to the strictures of defense. In other words, he told me to go out on patrol and stop bothering him. Our church is a proactive one, and we have been doing our best to catalog and confront the dangers to the colony as best we can. Our discovery of a nest of wyverns and the dispatching of its inhabitants went unremarked by the colonial government, putting them on par with Yulbin in my estimation. I do not seek personal glory, but an acknowledgement that the Church of Oan is more than just a place to mend wounds and sing hymns. It might also go some way to others asking why I have so many stains on my tabard if all I'm doing is church stuff. Hi, this is Klaus Holm, and I'm the creator of Tempest Investigations. If you like TV shows like Buffy, Angel, and Supernatural, you should check out Tempest Investigations. Listen to it on TFN, creator-distributed, fan-supported. Wyverns have been found on every continent, though the North American horned wyvern was already on its way to extinction before Paladin and Julia helped them along. Attempts to reintroduce the species have met with some protest, as well as the occasional disappearance of those promoting it. To be fair, this is sometimes due to them being devoured by their breeding stock. Uh, We're going to skip ahead a little in Angelia's diary to when her monster patrols included some new orders. Dumarnday, the 19th of Mavestus. At the behest of Yulbin, we have been instructed to bring the corpses of the beasts we slay back to the colony for what I'm told is study. Unlike other gods, Oan does not prohibit the examination of the workings of life, so long as the life being examined is not still alive at the time. Such knowledge has allowed for very subtle healing works and antitoxins to be created, as well as whatever our monks back home brewed for extra money selling to taverns and alehouses. houses. 
You might notice a subtle morality divergence here, as uh, many Oanian monasteries are forbidden from actually consuming the beverages they create. Apart from quality assurance and research purposes, it's explained in the Doctrine of Symbiosis, which commands Oanian adherents to minister to a sin-filled world while supporting itself by creating products that are often seen as vices. The doctrine more or less states that if the products are desired, there's still more work to be done perfecting the world, and if they didn't have direct knowledge of how well they were selling, then they might accidentally think their mission was over. I'm at a loss to know what more can be gained from the things that attack us from the forest. We've encountered lizard folk of varying size and hostility, unearthed the nests of giant insects, and have removed the threat of dire owls from carrying off livestock and colonists who unwisely go for evening strolls. I estimate we have brought home over 50 stones worth of carcasses in the past week alone, either from just outside the walls or from excursions required by the Colonial Guard. In spite of all of this, I am still without insight regarding my dilemma, and the Colonial Governor, that stonecarp fellow, seems to not be concerned with the spiritual stain upon our new home consorting with the undead will bring. Some might think Angelia isn't the sharpest sword in the armory here, but there's a pattern of those making records for highly regimented groups like churches or company social media accounts to do their best to not come off as overly critical, argumentative, or as some might put it, expendable. At my latest round of inquiries, I was assigned a squire who was one of a newly formed order, the Silent Seekers. The squire is anything but silent, yet his charges are. We are to test the skills of this new group, currently three, as servants of Alan. They appeared before me clad in gray robes, gray hoods, and gray masks. Leather armor was tightly affixed to them, and the sun hammer symbol of Oan had been embossed on each cuirass they wore. Me again. The number of orders that sprang up over the years are probably best viewed like rock bands. Nearly every god-powered institution had concepts for specialized groups, but very few of them got out of the beta testing phase for numerous reasons. They could get folded into larger existing ones that didn't want any competition. Uh, there were ones that were sort of ad hoc orders that accomplished their purpose they were made for. But more often, they didn't survive very long or were disbanded when issues arose that couldn't be resolved. One could say that the Silent Seekers fell into both of those latter categories. The squire, whose name was Trellin, commanded the Silent Seekers with a series of hand gestures that I soon could discern the meanings of. A raising of the hand meant to stop their march behind him, a clenched fist meant to freeze where they were, and an open palm making a chopping motion followed by pointing meant, slay that thing over there before it manages to do the same to us and be very quick about it. Our patrol was to harry a band of creatures that looked to be knoll-like monsters with a penchant for displaying skulls to mark their territory, as this territory apparently is to become a burrow of something proposed to be called stone carp estates in the future, we were ordered to remove them. I decided that Oan would favor this action, at least on principle. The fact that a church annex was promised as part of the proposed construction likely helped. I found myself a little dubious given the distance from the colony meant the great-grandchildren of our settlers would likely be the ones who would be breaking ground here. But I am not an urban planner. I am an instrument of Oan's will and had the squire to escort. I was given strict orders to defend the squire, that without him the silent seekers would become confused, as thus was the extensiveness of their training and devotion. I had heard of such warriors and holy persons, so dedicated to the gods that they lost themselves completely, becoming most keenly honed of instruments that they lost all ability to do anything else with themselves. 
or even for themselves. I do not question that devotion. I only point out that it's not the path I believe I was chosen to walk and smite some of the things along it. When we reached the Knoll's boundary, I saw the silent seekers in action. They were effective, there was no doubt about that. I deflected several incoming arrows while the squire made hand gestures and guided his charges into battle. Once unleashed, they effectively tore into their quarry, literally, as well, much to the distress of whoever must clean their garb. The Knolls likely felt some dismay as well, though perhaps the thought that they inconvenienced a novice by giving them stains to clean was a comfort. Olan is a god that doesn't shy away from using weapons, encouraging his followers to do the same. Though the hammer is a favored one, I have taken up the blade, having found one blessed by an ancient hero of Oan, Saint Cress. I am therefore quite well versed in how swords, daggers, and other edged instruments work, so I was at first perplexed as to how these unarmed people in leather and robes managed to segment the knolls so handily. Any attempt to examine the silent seekers was discouraged by the squire, saying that they were sanctified to the point that any unclean contact with those not ritually blessed could undo the ritualistic power they held, or something to that effect. I didn't bother to point out that they'd touched things about as blessed and holy as the river downstream from the colony's privies. Perhaps they had some kind of combat clause in their blessings. This was not my area of expertise. Combat, however, was, and as much as I'm ashamed to admit it, we were ambushed. We had journeyed half a league or so beyond the skulls on sticks and those guarding them when we were rushed from behind. I had thought the silent seekers capable of watching their own backs, but this apparently wasn't among their skills. The first I knew we were being attacked was when a crude blade glanced off my mail, knocking me off balance. I whirled to see that the silent seekers had similar blades running them through. I was immediately filled with the power of Oan's divine vengeance, and I slew the creatures, feeling the power of St. Cress's sacred sword singing in my hand as it took head from neck and limb from torso in a feast of bone. This goes on for a few pages and has been the subject of one hymn that still survives to this day in Oanian rituals, but is more commonly known as the inspiration for the heavy metal song Knoll Slayer by the band Radioactive Miasma. I think the music video was really what sold that song. Anyway, Angelia is done de the area, and she addresses her situation and decides that it's probably not very good. I stood alone, save for the three silent seekers who stood as still as statues. The weapons jutting from them seemed to bother them not one whit. Even for the inhumanly devout, this was unusual behavior. Most religious displays to demonstrate the protection of a divine being tended to shy away from running the adherents through. Those that did, in my experience, tended to end with members of their sex doing that kind of thing for fun, along with setting far too many fires than necessary. The squire was beyond my care. I can heal, but only if the spark of life still kindles in the body. What lay before me was nothing but a husk, yet his charges remained. I wondered if I could command them as he did, and I tried numerous hand signs, all to no avail. When they would not even help to lift his body, I did so myself, wondering how long I would last in combat, thus burdened. I was a good ten paces away when I saw the silent seekers had not followed. They merely stood where I had left them. When I hefted the squire before returning, they trotted in my direction. I realized that I had made the squire's lifeless arm flop in such a manner that he had done the sign for march, which was a kind of arm-wavy affair. I tried others, and discovered that so long as I manipulated the arm and hand of the squire, the seekers more or less obeyed. Deciding that Owen's will often included experiencing the ridiculous, I accepted this state of affairs as a humbling one, and moved on, the seekers following. 
The second null attack I saw coming, likely because they saw I was burdened and thought stealth was unnecessary. Manipulating the squire's stiffening fingers as I had seen, I sent the seekers into battle, where they held the nulls off long enough for me to unsheath my own weapon and join in the fray. It was here that I saw the familiar-looking talons of dire owls emerging from the hands of the seekers, and the slash from a null sword revealed tanned flesh below the leather and cloth. I also had to chase the knolls from the squire's body, which they were attempting to drag away, presumably for consumption. I then found that to stop the seekers from continuing to slash and maim their foes, even after said foes were in enough parts that they were being spread more than sectioned, I had to retrieve and use the squire's lifeless hand and arm. The knolls, however, had already begun portioning my fallen companion. I was able to retrieve his arm and get the seekers to cease. By Oan, I was confronted with the whole of it. My superiors were reanimating not just the dead, but the dead of several species to create monstrosities. Were they not under the control of the arm I held, I didn't doubt those things would try to do to me as they had done unto others. Leaving them by themselves was out of the question, but returning safely to the colony would be in doubt without them, as was driven home by a second, more vigorous attack. I had to call upon the healing power of Oan to convince my leg to hold my weight after that, and one of the seekers was torn asunder. Even so, it tried to move to follow us as I arm-waved the others into motion towards Dunwellmish. I was confounded. Here I was, using reanimated abominations created by servants of Oan, while every law I'd ever lived under told me this was immoral to do. Am I living in a lawless country, then? If so, am I bound to abide by its lack of strictures, even though they aren't as strong as my faith? Am I doing evil by perpetuating it? I shall do many hours of meditation and penance for hand-waving, adjusting my moral code when convenient. After many miles of marching, sure I was being followed, I made my decision what I should do. Here she goes into detail about her reasoning, including the citation of large parts of Oanian scripture, writ, and works of other theologians not necessarily of her own faith. This is pointed to, as, among other things, how religious studies weren't completely limited to one deity or pantheon, or rather, they weren't only for knowing who deserved to be converted by, by force if necessary. We'll return to Lannis Caxton's account of her return, as it helped catapult the issue of the use of undead to the fore in Dunwellnish, though probably not in the way that Angelia had hoped. Day, the 20th of Mavestus. Early this morning, the paladin Angelia Laertus returned from a church-sanctioned foray into the wilds as a part of their participation in our common defense scheme, which I was just now made aware of by his lordship. He has generously deemed that burdening me with every jot and tittle of running the colony as too cumbersome given my other duties. This sort of thing also includes most budgetary matters, guild negotiations, and whether or not any remains in our graveyard will remain remains, as it were. On that subject, the aforementioned paladin entered the gates this morning, accompanied by two raggedly dressed individuals. She removed their cowls, demonstrating for all that, if the swords through their midriffs didn't convey that they were dead, their embalmed visages should. She reportedly made the following announcement. Beware, O people of Dunwellmish, of the defective nature of these risen corpses. Though they might fight well, they have the reasoning ability of a demented sheep. But, you might say, they follow orders well. I question having them at the behest of a mere limb like this one. Gasp in horror if you must, but making such a flawed control scheme is a great security risk. 
We must ask, what if our arms fell into the hands of an enemy? Our own arms could be turned against us, making us vulnerable to... Oh, I beg Owen's pardon. I gestured with the wrong arm, the one that was not my own. I have ceased their charge, so if you calm down, I can continue. And she did, going over the tactical disadvantages and ways the Seekers could be overwhelmed. It was a bit on the embellished side, as a lot of arguments could be applied to just about any weapon that didn't take a lot of skill to be effective. Most say it was having a severed limb and zombie-like demo models to criticize that really got people debating about just what was going on in regards to body disposal at Dunwellnish. While it caused uproar at the start, it gave Lord Stonecarp the chance to step in and mediate a settlement where the necromancers and religious organizations could continue to make the simplest of guards and laborers under strict supervision. Unfortunately, the fact that the Seekers weren't undead with souls bound to them was what made them so robotically single-minded when given commands. This gave officials the opening to authorize the binding of souls for punishment of capital offenses in rare cases, as far as we can tell. The honest church didn't appear to punish or excommunicate Angelia, likely due to her gaining some measure of popularity and respect, in addition to having a kill-all, god-powered sword that she still pledged to defend the people with. She did relocate from the church's boundaries and took up residence in the general soldiers' barracks where she drilled and trained the guards when not otherwise on duty. For her speech that didn't quite condemn the Oanian activities in Dunwellnish directly while still trying to stop them, she's become something of a patron saint of truth in advertising and customer complaints. During times of labor unrest, little icons of Guardian Angelia might show up on a manager's desk, becoming a kind of, does this bug you? I'm not touching you. Does this bug you? statement. Ironically, the biggest producer of these icons is an Oanian outfit that promises each one is blessed to produce the best outcome for all involved. So, no matter which side gets the better deal, of course. And thus, necromancy came a little out of the shadows at Dunwellmish before causing a lot more conflict in the future. We'll get to that another time, but in the next episode, we'll revisit talking animals again as we look at what might have become of the various passengers on the Waywarden. When we last saw that ship, it was leaving the continent for parts unknown, mostly. We'll see how often reports of their passage coincided with interesting events, as well as how often the ship and crew were blamed for what transpired. Until next time, wave your hands in the air if you don't care about potentially giving orders to nearby reanimated body parts. You've been listening to Vorpal History, a... I've been told to not encourage people to give commanding gestures to the unalive, just so we don't get sued. Okay. Carry on me. A look at the fantastical history of the world which, for all you know, is totally real. You shouldn't get your history facts from a podcast, especially one that still hasn't gotten around to those citations. Get more of this podcast and other great content on the Fantasy Network.